I want you today to travel with me back to the first century. Can you do that? First century church. We're meeting in the upper room because that was the largest of the rooms in Jerusalem and Judea and surrounding areas. Jesus is one year in the grave and resurrected when the first of this book began to circulate. The church is somewhere between Acts 8 and Acts 9. Acts 8, the martyrdom of Stephen. And the scattering of the early church into the regions of the surrounding area. And Acts 9.31 says there was a time of relative prosperity. So as we get into the book of James, we find to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations that these were believers, some of whom were running for their lives with very real concerns that they were going to be physically persecuted, others with a time of tranquility and peace. But for all of them and for us today, we are sitting one year removed from the feet of Jesus. And, and I love that. The reason I love to teach through the books, the Gospels, and I'm doing that now in Matthew, is it puts us right back at the feet of Jesus. Now, the early church wasn't without its problems, to use a double negative. It had problems because it had people. And we begin to see that in the book of James. And specifically, there was a negotiation for status, for power, for prestige in the early church. You know, we know that from even our experiences 20 centuries later in the church. I've had the opportunity to start four churches. Um, as you get to know me, you'll find that out. And two of them I started in Texas and two of them I started in Oregon. And uh, we had our challenges. I even had one of my children and our, third our first church here in Oregon. We were meeting in a high school, and the boys would kind of like this boy would his, of his father would skip out of the service and play in the lockers and lock themselves in the lockers in the high school. We'd have to extract them. And so we had a whole dynamic going of people and circumstances where we people bring their problems into the church community, and it's no different here. By the way, might I say parenthetically, because I can say it and Steve won't say it, so I can. <laughs> we are so privileged to have the McCracken family here. Um, I've used this story before with Steve, and I'll spend 30 seconds with you. A little boy heard his great sermon from his pastor on Sunday night, went up afterwards and said, Pastor, how long did it take you to prepare that? He said, 30 minutes and 30 years. And that's what we have. Do not ever undervalue Steve and Debbie and their work among us. It is a gift of God that continues to provide for us. Anyway, churches, early century, we're in the first century, we're on the second, second floor of this home. We look around and the majority of people around us are slaves and we're meeting on Sunday night because that's the only time the slaves get off. We see occasionally somebody that belongs to the political establishment in our community or maybe a member of the Roman family, maybe a centurion or a guard, but for the most part we're kind of a motley crew and we are 
listening to the reading of this book. Now, there were two ways in which the early scriptures got out to the first century. One way was by oral tradition. So we would have both the disciples and travelers who had lived when Jesus taught and ministered. And they would bring by oral tradition certain stories that Jesus told, parables, and we'll get into those today. The other was that the first we see of the writing of James, the brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus, was in the book of Jesus. And so what I want you to do today is put yourself into a setting where you're going to hear all five chapters. I'm not going to read all five chapters to you, but I'm going to try to pick the highlights and lowlights of what was the context for what we're doing today, because our concern today is what am I doing right, what am I doing wrong, and how do I get from plan A to plan B? And in the book of James, to these believers who were scattered, many of them running for their lives, in James chapter 1, the first thing we have to establish is that these are believers. And you say, well, John, that's obvious. Well, not always obvious. Look at chapter 1. Oh, my tradition. Hold up your Bible. Hold up your electronics. Good. All right. And I'm actually, if you have your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to write in it today. It's not sacrilegious. You'll find my Bible has notes all written through it and sticky notes and everything else. In James, this is a book written to believers. And you're going to find six or seven times in the book that James refers to these people as brothers. Chapter, two, verse, chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Chapter 1, verse 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Chapter 1, verse 19. Again, they're called brothers. In chapter 2, verse 1, in the favoritism to the wealthy in the church, he said, my brothers. And we go on and on. The reason that's important is we can't schizophrenically, interpretationally, jump out of this text and go from believers to unbelievers to try to figure out the hard text. There are at least two sections in this, scripture, in this book that are hard. The first is James 2 that Luther struggled with, justification by works. We've talked about that. That is justification before men, and it is not in contradistinction to the Apostle Paul's Ephesians 2, justification by faith, through, through faith by grace through faith. It is an explanation of what the working out of, the, of our life is. And I, <laughs> I continue to love Abraham and Rahab in juxtaposition to each other in chapter 2 because the Jews would have reveled, this Jewish believers would have reveled in the stories of Abraham. And then they would have had a theological nervous tick when, these, when it was read about Rahab, this Gentile prostitute. And the phrase in this book is, in the same way as Father Abraham, so Rahab was justified by faith in what they did. So it's a great book. It's a, it's a challenging section, but it's written to believers. Second section is the section we're in now in chapter 4. So let's go there and read it, and then let's see if we can get the setting. Chapter 4, and it's a hard setting, and it's for that reason that we said last week, John MacArthur and others have bailed out contextually of this passage and tried to apply it to unbelievers. You can't do that. Chapter 4 and verse 6, I'm reading. But he gives, he gives more grace. That's why the scripture says, God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So whatever we're going to read today is 
grace upon grace. It's grace piled upon grace. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Seven times, James, in the section we just read, can I say this? Hammers these believers. It's believers. It's not unbelievers. And, and we can't interpretationally jump out of this and say it's to unbelievers. He says, submit, resist the devil, uh, draw near to God, wash your hands. We haven't heard that for a year or so. Uh, purify your hearts. By the way, did you see the MIT article yesterday about uh, social distancing doesn't work, whether it's six feet or 60 feet? I'll go on. I won't talk about that. Wash your feet, purify your hearts, grieve, mourn, wail, humble yourself, and don't judge. This is instructions to believers. So what's going on? These are believers that have the common struggle that we all have. It's called life. It's the old woman in the South who, when asked how she's done, she says, not so, not so good because life is so daily. It is that. It is us negotiating through the challenges of life within the circumstances that are before us. And so we find that these believers in James chapter 1, in this upper room where we're now beginning to get ready to hear the book of James read to us by one of the traveling teachers that went from church to church to community to community, not the false teachers, but the true believers who were transporting the earliest portions and copies of the scriptures, he said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that perseverance must finish its work that you may be complete and perfect not lacking in anything so before we even settle into our cushion on the floor in the upper room the reading of the brother of James who was converted later on in his life to follow his brother Jesus and who Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection, James writes, you're in this for the long haul. Let perseverance have its work. Let it finish its work. So you know that the trials that God has put in your life and in my life are designed to burn out the dross clean us out in a way that allows us to persevere and be complete. It is true. I said it last week. It's true this week as well. For the Christian, the race is won, but it still needs to be run. So this is to believers who, who are facing trials. Could have been physical. It certainly included fear. It's still sorting out the fact that Jesus is gone. He's resurrected. And so James writes, But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously all to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Wonderful encouragement that God is at our side in the process. And then James gives, and this is the beginning of the glimpse of that first section of what kind of struggles are these Christians going through? 
he says, but, and in the law we call that a stipulation, um, but when he asked, he must believe and not doubt, because he that doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. So the promise is that God will come alongside us and be for us the kind of monitor that gives us the wisdom to live the way we need as long as we don't doubt. We say, John, that's impossible because it's a human experience to doubt. This is not doubt the way the English language says doubt. It's debating. You see in the context it says not double-minded. The Greek word there, it's a great word. It means duosuke. It is split-minded. It's double-minded. It's someone who says, God, I refuse to believe that what I'm in now is from your hand. I'm challenging you on that. I'm debating you on that. And James says, don't do that. Don't debate God in terms of what he's put into your life because you'll end up then, as James said, that double-minded man will not receive anything from the Lord. Proverbs 8.35 says, Wisdom instructs us to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. So this is a, this is a scriptures that says, don't challenge God in the work that he's, in the, in the test he's put in front of you, but write it out. Let perseverance have its finished work. Say, okay, what other problems do these first centuries have, first century believers around us in the upper room have? Chapter 2. You heard that. They, they were favoring the wealthy, shuttling them up front, putting the poor in back. And James said, don't do that. That's an indictment to the God who you serve. Chapter 3, they were ripping each other up with their tongues. <laughs> their tongues were lacerating the body in a way that was slanderous, was defamatory. In fact, James uses three illustrations. You remember, a spark as to a fire, a sail as to a ship. And he says, it will consume you if you let your tongue wag. So stop it. That's what James says. And, and we're, we're listening to this in chapter 3. And we've been reminded in chapter 3 that we all stumble in many ways. And so we look around and say, well, mm, does that apply to me? Well, yeah. Does it apply to my neighbor? Well, yeah, it does as well. We all stumble in many ways. And finally, you get to chapter 4, and you're still evaluating what it is these believers are struggling with, and you realize it's raw selfishness. It's attempting to pray for things in a way that you'll get and can spend it on your own pleasures. It's, for lack of a better term, consumption gone wild. It's saying, God, if you give this to me, then I can... My neighbor has that boat on that carport or that travel trailer, and I'd love to have that. And, boy, we can spend our weekends away. It's not honoring to God to pray for things just so we can consume it on ourselves. In fact, next week we'll find out at the end of James 4 what it means to be in business as a Christian, how you monitor yourself on that. But in this selfish motives and prayer for things that we can consume on ourselves, these believers were no different than the people we live around, which is 
how can I upgrade and upgrade and increase my lifestyle in a way that is personally more comfortable to myself? James says that's not appropriate. And then finally, in our section, he gets to the heart of the issue, which is these people have tried to keep their feet in two worlds, the world of the earth and the world of God, the world of the devil and the world of heaven. And James says you can't do that. You can't have a split allegiance that says Monday through Friday, <laughs> this is where I'm at. Uh, Sunday, I'll be over here. James says that kind of fractured spiritual life will leave you without any kind of spiritual growth or satisfaction. So that was the struggle in this upper room as we're reading through the book of James. That's the struggle that these believers were having. Now, there may have been a theologically astute believer in there that says, wait a minute, I got a, I got a question here. Before we get to the second section, which is who God is, God made me. And if I'm rebellious or I'm having struggles, I kind of think that's God's fault as much as it's my fault. Well, that question is handled two ways in the Bible. It's called the origin of evil. If I'm going too fast, sorry, but I, we got a lot of material to cover. Um, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve were created perfectly, but with the capacity to rebel. That's who we are. And first Adam in saying, the woman gave it to me, and then the woman saying, well, the serpent gave it to me. We find out what is the crux issue of what personal irresponsibility is in the Bible. It's called blaming somebody else, not taking personal responsibility. It's that person's fault, or it's the family I was raised in, or the parents I have, or the job I have, or the physical limitations that I have, and the scriptures would say no. But there's a second critical section in this book that addresses the issue of personal responsibility. I love this section. It's in verse 1, and I'll read it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and, and carried away and dragged away and enticed by his own desire. And after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. There it is, flat at our feet. So these believers had no one to blame but themselves for the struggles that they were in. And James made it very clear that God is the author of life, is not the author of evil. That comes from within us. We learned last week that these believers were struggling in their members. Do you remember that, that passage in chapter 4 when it says, you don't the quarrels and fights that you have come from your desires that battle within you. So we've done our spade work now on this. We've done our summary work on this book. And it says about us, we are people redeemed. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're people with a challenge ahead of us. And if we get distracted away from the purposes of God into our own selfish interests, our mean-spirited behavior, then that becomes a road to our spiritual damage. 
I didn't use the word demise, but damage is a good word, and it's that Second Timothy 2.19 that says, only the Lord knows those who are his, but let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. The crux issue here is from the imagery of the prodigal, and that's the story that I like to overlay into what we're doing today. The prodigal came, the boy came, and he said, Dad, I want my inheritance. <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, we have occasionally that happen in the law practice as well, where a younger person gets a bolus of money, and it almost never works out well for them. But this boy took off, lived life in a way that was dishonoring to both God and to his father and family, and made the most out of every circumstance that he was in with the means that he had until he ran out of money. And that prodigal boy, meanwhile, unbeknownst to him, had a father who was grieving and waiting for him. And those of us as parents, we know that because the critical issue we're trying to address today is where am I with God and where are those that I love, where are they with God? And if you're a parent, you never stop being a parent. You worry about your children. You care about your children. You want them to do well spiritually. But it's that driven concern that says, for those that may be wandering, God, bring them back. And that's what's going to happen with the prodigal. How do we come back? What is this? kingdom of God that we're part of in terms of what is the draw from poor decisions to spiritual growth. In this book, God is presented in the following way. I'll just summarize it for you. He's a God who gives wisdom to all who asks without partiality, without penalizing you for your past behavior. He gives to all who ask. He's a God who in chapter 1, verse 17, I love this passage, and we flew past it two years ago. When, um, and I'm reading in chapter 1 and verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of, of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting sat shadows. Mark that one out. Oh, I said I was going to summarize a bit for you. Man, I uh, mark out that verse. God does not change like shifting sh shadows. What would that mean to a first century listener? They were, for the most part, agrarian. They were farmers. And they saw the seasons and weather sweep through their communities on a regular basis. They saw the sun and the rain as we have. But this promise says God doesn't change like the shadow. He doesn't go from light to dark. He's constant. He's there all the time. And so the promise in James 1 is you can rely on him because whatever circumstance in life you find yourself, he's constant. He's there. He's always there for you. The other thing we find about God is that he rewards those who seek him. James 1.12 talks about the crown of life. James 1.27 says this is, this is pure religion to visit the widow and orphan in their distress. God 
is anxious to bless you and me for the kinds of things we do that are following his word and his spirit. In chapter 2, God is a God who is able to give to the believer the kind of opportunities in life to provide justification and a working out of his faith. In chapter 3, God is a God who is one who honors our desire to live with wisdom before him. And you remember, wisdom means skillful living, that ability to obey the kinds of things God asks us to do. Now in chapter 4, we come, we break it open now in chapter 4. Two things in chapter 4, if you'll go back there with me. When you ask, excuse me, chapter 4 says, or do you think that the scripture says without reason that the spirit he causes to live in us envies intensely? What does that mean? Chapter 4 and verse 5, what does it mean that the spirit envies intensely? It means that when you're in a struggle, your Heavenly Father jealousy, jealously through the Spirit reaches out to you. What? You mean I don't have to get my act together before God will come and meet me halfway? No, you don't. God is ahead of you. And this says the Spirit envies you. So these believers who were struggling had the anxious Holy Spirit himself wanting to intercede with them. Talk about a blessing. You don't have to earn it. It's the nature of grace that it is given to us when we don't deserve it. And if we miss the point of the Holy Spirit, then the text says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. He is one who gives more grace. He piles it on. In other words, in the midst of the questions that we have about life and the letting perseverance finish its work in our life, God provides grace upon grace. He gives you abundantly more than you're able to ask or think as he gets you through your journey in life. The promise is, and this is a wonderful promise that James saw worked out in his brother Jesus for three years, that Jesus gave direction and grace and instruction to his disciples who never did really get their act together. At least the male disciples didn't. The women did, but men didn't. They were a mess at the end. Peter and, and John and others, they were heading out for parts unknown. And the women alone were worshiping Jesus at his death and in his tomb. Um, but God gives grace upon grace to meet us at the level of our need and then encourage our walk. So where does it leave us in terms of repentance and restoration? Repentance and restoration has two parts. It is a vertical and a horizontal kind of analysis. Uh, Luke chapter 18 is a section where Jesus taught about what it means to be lost. In terms of the parable of the disciples and the instructions to his disciples, 
he talks not only about the um, lost coin, but he also talks about the parable. And that's where we see our parable. So this boy who has come to the end of himself and who has frustrated all the means that he had now says, I came to my senses and said, how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare and here I am starving to death. God will create a wall for you. You'll hit it if you keep running. Kind of the Jonah thing. And um, when you hit the wall, you can shake your head and say, that must have been swamp gas. I'm going to find my way around it and keep going. Or you're going to say, hey, that wall was designed to wake me up. It was designed to say, what am I doing? I told you last week about in my circumstances that in my period of substantial rebellion, say 15 years ago, it was the Spirit of God and Christian brothers and the Word of God that was my wall. And I said, what am I doing? And I turned around. And that's what this scripture, that's what the parable is. It, it's the prodigal is one who hits the wall and says, as he comes to his senses, even my dad's servants have it better than I have it. And he went back. So the first vertical kind of analysis of repentance is one that deals with us as our heavenly, with him as our heavenly father. It's the, it's, the, it's the recognition that our breach is first of all a breach with God himself. And we need to go back to God and say, okay, this is where I am and this is where I've been running and this is where I need to come. And the good news is God will meet you there. He'll meet you at that wall. He'll meet the prodigal at the time when he comes to his senses. And he is more interested in you turning around and me turning around than even you are. The second part of the repentance is not only a making right with God, it's making right with those around us. Uh, I love the section in Matthew chapter 5, and I just finished teaching that uh, in Matthew 5 on the section of murder, <laughs> where it says, you know, you shall not murder, but if you've got anger in your heart, you've murdered already, oh, you know, rats, I'm out on that one, uh, or you shouldn't commit adultery, but if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed rats, I'm out on that one too, and so Jesus says the solution is... Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. What's that mean? It means there's a time to stop your religious activity in general. Don't, don't preoccupy yourself with the church attendance buttons or the kinds of things that you do to click off what you think it means to stay just in right relationship to God. If, if, if you have something against your brother or he has something against you, leave your regular religious activity and go make it right as best you can. Matthew 18 says you may not be able to win over that brother or sister, but you gotta, gotta, gotta try. It's not honoring to God 
to just continue to track in a way that claims that I'm walking with God and leaving people strewn in my wake all around me. That's not true repentance. True repentance is being concerned about my walk with God and being concerned about my relationships with others. And James has already said that to us anyway in chapter 1 when he said that in fact when we are following God who is not like shifting sh shadows, he said he chose us to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of all that he's created. Now you don't have the Jewish tradition, but the festival of the first fruits, and for me as a farmer I kind of identify with this, was when the harvest came, the first of the harvest was taken and waved ceremoniously in the Jewish community to say, this crop is from God. And likewise, do you see the picture? As God works in our life, and as we say, humble and serious in our walk with him and our relationships with others, we become, you and I become, first fruits that are kind of waved before God. Where does it leave us? Well, for two weeks, I've said to you, it leaves us as people who most should be real. And you're getting a little tired of that, so I've got another story to tell you. One of my favorite children's books was The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams. It's a great book. And it's about a little stuffed rabbit that was introduced into the home of a little boy and with a lot of other fancy toys that were a lot more fancy than the Velveteen Rabbit. They were mechanical, they moved. <laughs> the Velveteen Rabbit didn't do anything, he just lay there. And so he was relatively ignored by the little boy in the home and by the uh, matron of the home who took care of the boy named Nana. This rabbit in its dialogue with the toys in the toy box would ask about what is real. And one of the wisest toys in the Velveteen Rabbit is the skin horse and the skin horse had some instructions for the Velveteen Rabbit. He said to this little guy who was neglected and living in the box, the Velveteen Rabbit, excuse me, the skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out and had head, head ties. He was wise that he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys come and go, and he had seen their mainsprings break and pass away. He knew they were only toys, for nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced like the skin horse understood all about it. So the rabbit said, the Velveteen Rabbit, what is real? He said when he was lying side by side near the nursery fender and in with the skin horse. The skin horse said, 
Real isn't how you're made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Said the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, or bit by bit? And the skin horse says, it doesn't happen all at once. You become, it takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges who have to be careful. Generally, by the time you become real, most of your hair has been loved off. Great story. It goes on. Grab it and read it to your children. Read it to yourself. Come up and get my copy and read it. It goes on to where the rabbit eventually, with the magic fairy, gets real life. But the point for us is this. That's real. Don't pretend. Don't be pretentious. Don't be proud. Don't think that your agenda can privately be yours and God doesn't know about it. I had a middle-of-the-night conversation with God about that in my life last night in preparation for this. It means that you are humbly accepting the grace of God in your life and wanting to use the days and means and resources that you have in a way that honor him. That's real. You're not pretentious. You're not better than somebody else. In fact, we all stumble in many ways. You are people who are marked by grace and by the work of Jesus. That's the first thing we do. The second thing we realize is that we are most grateful. We are people that have been through no purpose of our own drafted into the kingdom of God. I have a list of people I pray for that I don't believe are Christians yet. And my regular prayer for them is that the spirit of God will draw them. If by chance you're here today and you've not yet said to Jesus, remember me in your kingdom, you can do that today before leaving. And you can talk to Doug or Ed or Michael or me or someone about that afterwards. But for those of us that have made our commitment to Jesus, for us, we are people who are grateful because the Spirit of God courts us, he woos us, he jealously pursues us, and the work of Christ is designed, in the words of Peter, to be the following. Therefore, my friends, since you already know, be on your guard so that we may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, it's with hearts of gratitude that we come to you today and recognize that we all have prodigal in us. We all are people who have wandered, but that you've drawn us back. And that you as our Heavenly Father has received us back, has offered a feast in our name, has said to us that we are continuing to meet the design of the way in which you have purposed us. May we 
act in a way that's honorable to you, that's honest in terms of the affairs of our life, that's humble in recognizing there but for the grace of God go I, and that we celebrate today with the McCracken family for the homegoing of Nancy. In Jesus' name, amen.